Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Britton Burton, who is the Senior Director of Product Strategy at Coral Technologies. He's also the host of the Cyber Fix podcast. And uh, Britton is a cybersecurity risk management practitioner with over a decade of experience designing and leading security programs and teams in the healthcare setting. We're going to be talking to Britton about some of the upcoming healthcare cybersecurity legislation and some of the latest news in healthcare cybersecurity. But before we do that, let's say hi to Britton. Britton, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Hey, my pleasure. Whereabouts are you located? Uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Coral is actually headquartered in Atlanta, so I, I go down there uh, from time to time, but do most of my work out of Nashville, Tennessee. Awesome. And how far is Nashville from Atlanta? It's about a four-hour drive or <laughs> four hours airport, you know, if you include uh, flight time and security and all that stuff. So one way or the other, it takes about four hours to get there. <laughs> so do you do you prefer the drive or the flight? I have gotten to where I prefer the flight because I can at least kind of be more passively involved in travel. And uh, anyone, if you have any listeners that live in this part of the country and ever have to travel, have to drive through Chattanooga, uh, it is it is a crapshoot how that's going to go. And so, <laughs> if, if I can avoid that that interchange there in Chattanooga uh, in a car, I, I'm I'm absolutely going to. It's funny because I'm in Seattle, the Seattle area, and I have I don't know four or five times a year I have something going on in Portland. Portland, Oregon. Okay. And it's uh, 179 miles. It's about two and a half to three hours, depending on traffic getting through a couple different cities. But some people pr prefer to fly. And for me, like two and a half to three hours, that's that's kind of a push because when you're going to fly, by the time you get to the airport, you got to get there early. You got to check right. in. And then when you arrive in Portland, you need to, you know, you, ha you have to have some kind of transportation. So I prefer the drive. But I hear you in terms of, you know, when you're driving, you can't be doing other things and it, it takes some time and energy. I typically listen to podcasts or uh, audiobook or something, but if it was much longer, I'd be with you. I'd be on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, also Atlanta traffic is legendarily difficult. So, it, you know, what should be a four hour drive between hey, well, Chattanooga and Atlanta can become a six hour. <laughs> right. What city has good traffic these days? Yeah, <laughs> that's mean... true. That's a fair point. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, so, you know, it's interesting because we talk to so many different people, so many different areas of cybersecurity, and healthcare uh, is one of those industries where security, data protection are both incredibly important. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about any new legislation that you see on the horizon related to cybersecurity in the healthcare industry. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's the the loaded topic du jour right now for anyone in in healthcare cyber. It, it feels it feels pretty imminent that something is coming. Um, you know, obviously the entire cybersecurity industry is is in tune with the the recent cybersecurity strategy from from the Biden administration and all the proclamations within and and a lot of talk about harmonizing, you know, rulemaking across all of critical infrastructure. We know it'll be a while until any of that is is turned into law, but that that was sort of the you know the the, the alert that hey some some things are coming, but even before that, 
I talked on my podcast a lot over the past uh, six months about we. It just really feels like if you're reading the tea leaves, that that something is coming either for healthcare or critical infrastructure as a whole. And so certainly, if you've been paying attention to Senator Warner and and some of the the uh, uh, advances he's wanting to make in terms of of cybersecurity rules. Uh, for healthcare, specifically for healthcare, he definitely has a healthcare bent uh, to to what he's doing. Uh, you know, he released a white paper, and I want to say it was November. Now, I may get my my uh, timing a little a little cross, but I believe it was November. Just outlining like basically HIPAA's HIPAA's kind of dated at this point. Uh, we need to consider an update. We need to consider continual updates of HIPAA. We need to consider things like incentivizing, uh, you know, health systems towards compliance with whatever updated cybersecurity rule exists, because the the voluntary uh, approach, or and even in some cases with HIPAA, the mandated approach just isn't working. There can be so many cash trap systems that need, you know, need incentives or need need a boost basically to to improve their cybersecurity posture. We've got to consider things like that. Um, you also, I talk a lot, I'm sure you've covered it some too, the, the, the CISA cyber performance goals, uh, that just feels to me like the, the beginnings of what will become federally mandated. Again, it may be all critical infrastructure and not just healthcare, but federally mandated as like, this is, this is the minimum requirement. This is how you can prove you're at least doing something where if you do get popped, if you do get breached that you're not going to be uh, held held to the same level of account as if you can't prove you're doing these things. Um, there's another one within healthcare that's called a uh, HICP or HICCUP, depending on how you pronounce it. It's HICP, and it's kind of a core set of critical controls that just recently was named by Office of Civil Rights as a, a recognized security practice. Uh, meaning if you can prove that you've met these uh, kind of baseline set of controls appropriate to your size of healthcare system, uh, that you will uh, basically be eligible uh, essentially for reduced penalties or even early termination of an audit. And so it's just, there, there's more, there's more kind of momentum to um, like coalescing around standards, I guess, is the way I would describe it than I have ever seen in, in my history in healthcare cyber to where it feels like something is coming. Uh, you know, I, I have I have listened to some um, lawyer types who would be better in tune and better positioned to really talk through the lawmaking aspect of it than I, uh, that have said the HIPAA overhaul probably isn't coming this year, but that it's definitely coming. It's just kind of a matter of when. So I don't know, you, you look through all that and it feels like the, the HIPAA compliance of the past, you know, 20 years or however long it's now been is probably nearing the end of its runway and whether it's you know critical infrastructure as a whole has this new set of, of rules to abide by or it is something more tailored to healthcare like if, if Senator Warner for example keeps pushing and, and kind of gets out in front of the critical infrastructure stuff coming from uh, the, the national cybersecurity strategy something is coming and it's just a matter of, of uh, uh, when at this point in my mind. Well, in, in the context of healthcare, do you think the, the focus or the emphasis will be on protecting infrastructure, protecting devices, or is it more on data protection uh, processes and policies, uh, you know, breach notifications, things like that? Yeah, it's a little bit of all the above. It's it's interesting, you know, if, if you look at these uh, CISA CPGs or, or, or HICP, I always kind of 
tie them together. They're, they, they don't cover the exact same set of, uh, of controls or of, of uh, safeguard obligations, but they, there definitely is some alignment and they're both, uh, they're both uh, very similar in that they try to kind of boil all the complexity of, of you know, the NIST 853s of the world and all the, all the controls you could do into like what matters the most to defend against the current day active threat landscape. Um, and so if, if you look at those, they, they cover a little bit of everything. There's definitely probably more of an emphasis on um, just the concept of data protection, which <laughs> that's a loaded term in and of itself. You know, uh, I think a lot of people, any, any two people you ask would define that, that differently, right? Um, but there's a lot of emphasis on, on that kind of domain, I would say. But then there are, you know, device level controls, access controls. Um, it's, it's sort of like the starter guide to... Uh, if you're going to have to start somewhere, if you've never had a security program and you need to start from scratch, if you do these, do these things first, you know, and that first year of a build out, you're going to be really ahead of the curve in terms of the common ways that threats manifest themselves in your environment. And then it sort of expand and mature to the bigger frameworks that are so hard to, to consume that you'll, you'll choke on them if you, if you don't really have that, that starting point. So it's a little bit of everything, honestly, and it's. But the key is, it's a little bit of everything, um, and and I think that's that's a positive thing. You know, a, a lot of times legislation is in reaction to the current event situation. So if we see some kind of threat uh, or some some large incident in whatever realm, then our government will react and say, "Hey, we need to create protections or." policies that will, you know, minimize the the downside of these events. What are you seeing in terms of the latest news related to issues with healthcare cybersecurity that may impact the kind of uh, the policies that our government is going to develop? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. And I totally agree. You know, you typically see um, down the line from when, when the bad things have happened is, is when government reacts, right? Um, I think what we're seeing now, specifically in the healthcare industry, this this may be true in, in other industries as well. I'm, I'm sure you talk to more cross-industry folks than I do because I'm, I'm very specialized within my work itself and, and also within, within the podcast that I do within healthcare. Um, but within healthcare, we are definitely seeing a, a massive trend towards the third-party threat vector. Um, basically, by that, I mean more and more hospital systems, uh, payers, just anyone in the in the healthcare ecosystem is outsourcing critical business operations to third parties. Uh, they're under such cost constraints in healthcare that anything you can do to find more efficient, you know, cheaper ways to get what was typically done in-house to operate a, a, a health system, uh, any way you can find to improve that from an efficiency or cost standpoint is, is very much on the table from your business leaders right now. And so technology is evolving uh, and the outsourcing and use of technology and, and data sharing tools and, you know, cloud, of course, um, is just evolving at a rapid, rapid pace within healthcare. Um, and healthcare is already pretty immature from a security standpoint compared to a lot of other industries. So when you add the, the, the third party component on top of it, attackers are absolutely seeing that, hey, you know, instead of going after hospital system XYZ, trying to compromise, you know, their network or, or gain access to their EHR or, or their PACS imaging system, 
Uh, I could much more, maybe, I shouldn't say much more easily, I would have much more uh, breadth of coverage in terms of the data I could compromise uh, if I can go after a vendor who is, you know, hosting the EHR of, of 50 hospital systems or who is, you know, cloud hosting the, the PACS imaging uh, of 50 hospital systems. Um, and so just seeing that more attacks are manifesting from within the third party realm. Uh, yeah, there was there was an article towards the end of, of the past year that I covered on, on, on the CyberFix that uh, nine of the top 10 data breaches in 2022, just in terms of uh, volume of records compromised, actually originated in a third party, not by the covered entity. So that is that is undoubtedly a trend and there's data to back it up. You know, it's we it's interesting in our world at, at Coral and at, at Metatology, our sister company that, that does a lot of uh, uh consulting and pen testing and, and risk assessment work, you know, we, we kind of see it anecdotally that it, it feels like the threat vector is switching to the third party more as opposed to directly coming after, you know, using the third party as an avenue to a covered entity as opposed to directly coming after the covered entity. Um, but there's there are tons of articles and data points and, you know, white papers and reports that are backing that up. Uh, that, that, that I come across frequently. So I don't feel like I'm, you know, crying wolf by saying that. Uh, and, and I think most in, in, in healthcare would say they're, they're seeing similar similar things from their own, you know, their own SOC, their own incident response teams and so on. Can you give any specific examples of breaches that have happened through a third party uh, threat vector? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, the biggest one was it's, it's old now, but it's the one that everyone kind of points to when they go, wow, this is a little bit scary, it would be the solar winds event. Uh, you know, that that's obviously two plus years old at this point, but you know, a, a third party who had some code base compromise, they weren't aware of it. Obviously they're in tons of uh, networks, again, not just healthcare, but tons of networks uh, around the country. And, and it was a really scary event that, that made its way all the way up to Washington that, you know, actually made its way into that cybersecurity strategy to your point earlier about uh, government tends to, to react to the, the thing that has happened a while ago. So that's the biggest example, but you know there are examples uh, every day that come across my feed that I'm, I'm evaluating. Is that something worth keeping an eye on, or talking about, or, or, or planning a, a service or a product around? Uh, you know, the 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 biggest ones right now, just kind of broadly speaking, tend to be the billing vendors. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, hospitals are outsourcing that you know rev cycle type operation to. Two third-party providers. It's a complex world. It's it's much easier to say you be the expert in that, and, and we'll pay you. But if you if you know anything about healthcare uh, operations, I mean, every potential sensitive data point about every patient basically is is in that billing information because it has to be for the coding to work and for the billing to work. And so if if attackers can compromise that, it's a treasure trove of of uh, healthcare data, PHI, that obviously turns into a HIPAA breach. So those billers, those, um, a lot of uh, legal, uh, like lawyer, you know, uh, external counsel type firms uh, are being compromised. Uh, again, that may not be unique to healthcare, but there are examples of that every week between those two and then, and then, and then pretty much uh, everything else. But uh, yeah, the, 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 some specific examples, I, I could definitely name more. But it's it's basically a few every week uh, of of these outsourced you know third party providers. Yeah, and I've seen it multiple times that <clears throat> when it comes to the different types of data, the healthcare data, healthcare information, 
is the most valuable and the most costly to um, when, when it's released. So it's the most valuable for the hackers and it's it's the most uh, costly f to those who've lost their data or their data has been compromised. In terms of attacks, are you just seeing data exfiltration or are you seeing the the, the malware attacks? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a, a little bit of everything again on this one. I, I think that definitely the main threat that certainly before I switched to being on on the vendor side and you know building products, I was I was in a large hospital company as a part of the security team. The thing that we were most in tune to, and that when I talk to other pros, they're most in tune to and concerned about is certainly ransomware, right? Uh, and and again, that that may not be different with a lot of other industries. We see the other kinds of attacks. You know, we see uh, a lot of. Uh, exfiltration coupled with ransomware, you know, the, the double extortion uh, kind of uh, attack of we've ransomware you and we've also exfiltrated the data. So not only do you have the hook of you better pay us the ransomware fee, you know, and, and then you'll get your systems back. But also if you don't, we still have the data. And even if you think you can, you know, deploy your DR plan to recover and you're not worried about paying the actual ransom, uh, we still have the data and we'll release it and you'll have a HIPAA breach on your hands and you know all the all the PR tailwind that comes from that. Um, and, and so you still have to pay us. That is that is coming more into vogue, unfortunately. Um, and and those those attacks are the the number one kind of on the radar for healthcare people. Uh, the the other variants of you know ransom I, I kind of group them all together I don't know if you do too but like wiper attacks and things of that nature that are more just intentionally destructive as opposed to um, as opposed to actually trying to gain payment um, mm -hmm. anything that basically reduces your operational capacity healthcare is just highly highly concerned with and in tune with because more so than probably any industry the the uptime the ability to be operational and to not have to go on diversion is just it's just the most important thing to healthcare people so uh, you know definitely other kinds of attacks are are manifesting business email compromises is, is a huge one in healthcare just like in every other industry it, it's a difficult one to combat there can be a lot of money that exchanges uh, hands with it um you know all of this all of the stuff tends to hit healthcare just like most industries, but the ransomware and kind of destructive operational destructive attacks are the most prominent and also the most concerning to defenders in in uh, sorry in healthcare because of that that bent towards we absolutely have to be up 24 seven 365. Um, and if you'll allow me, one thing I want to say there is I, I always get nervous about healthcare security people who go down the whole human life aspect of, of operational uptime in healthcare. That is, of course, important. We never want to do anything that would lead to harm of a patient. But I can I, I think that can be overused and overblown a little bit. And and you know that's a that's a card you can't play too often because you'll be you'll be kicked out of a lot of rooms if you're if you're talking to surgeons and, and people who actually deal with human life saving you know procedures every single day. Um, so it is an aspect of it, but it's it's more than just like literal human life, like this device might go offline and someone could die from it. It's it's that they may not make their appointment in time that could prevent a diagnosis that six months from now makes them go through extra rounds of, of chemotherapy. Or, you know, they may not make an appointment that 
um, that is really critical for the surgery they're having next week because they've got to be imaged so that that surgeon can have those images next week. And now that surgery's delayed a few days. Like that's the more real version of what this looks like that I think sometimes kind of gets glossed over and sort of like, I don't know, Hollywoodized <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of the life and death aspect of cybersecurity and healthcare. And so I, I always, I always try to kind of parse that out for people who maybe aren't in the healthcare space and just hear gloom and doom, life and death, and, 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 and make sure that, you know, that's communicated a little more clearly. So I, I, I appreciate you letting me have that sidebar there, but coming back to your sure. question, ransomware, operational destructive attacks, absolutely the, the most that we see and the most that we're concerned about. Okay. And if we, you know, kind of drill down on that third party threat vector, what are some things that companies in the healthcare industry, what can they do to prevent attacks from third parties? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's a lot, it, it seems like this unsolvable problem, right? Because it's, it's, you have such less control over your third parties than you do your own environment by, by the nature of, of the arrangement. Right. Uh, but there are definitely things you can do. I mean, the TPRM third-party risk management is is just an it's it's unequivocal that you you have to have a program in place for that now. Um, I think that's probably well enough known that that shouldn't be news to anyone, especially you know the kinds of listeners you, you probably have who are cybersecurity pros. Um, I, I think the the difference there, where we sit now as opposed to where we sat five years ago, is. You know, five years ago, it was about how can you how can you assess a vendor before you contract with them, and if if you do that, then great job. That's hard enough to do. Even today, that's hard enough to do. Um, but now we're, we're evolving to you know the 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 buzz term of continuous monitoring, the the ability to scale what you assess uh, across your entire vendor population, and not just. Um, that vendor that happens to be coming up for a contract or, you know, not just that, that top 5% of your most critical vendors, because you haven't been able to scale your TPRM assessment approach, um, in, in previous days when you were using spreadsheets and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of control questions that you expect a vendor to answer. So having a mature TPRM approach that allows you to assess your risk posture of your entire vendor population, or at least the entire vendor population that actually has some form of access or data, uh, or uh, even even connectivity to your network that, that you're, you know, that would cause you concern to do that in, um, in near real time, uh, in, a, in a continuous state, and not just at the time of contract. I think that's absolutely critical. The other things that I think you've got to be able to do, you know, and that's like a big program, programmatic approach to solving third party risk and, and is, is very important. There are some more just kind of like tactical things you can do. Like, are you aware of, you know, do it do an audit of, of, of your B2Bs uh, that you have with with people outside of your organization at a large organization? You would, you know, you'd be surprised at how difficult it is to actually know what B2Bs you have, where they're connecting to, what's on the other end of them, what the rules are on them. Um, you know, doing things like the, the the mundane things that no one wants to do of what third parties have access, or, or how are you how are you credentialing them? How are you giving them usernames and passwords? You know, do you force them into some sort of a, a mandated remote access tool that that you can monitor? There are several vendors that really offer really cool products in that space now versus you know opening up ports to the internet and things of that nature like just getting your arms around some of that basic blocking and tackling 
is is really really important and then coupling that with a tprm strategy a, a partner a, a, a tool suite that allows you to really do tprm holistically and not just at time of contract i think are are kind of what i would focus on so if we talk about coral technologies and your solution is this basically you're doing some kind of outward scan and looking at uh, information that's available externally or are you engaging with the vendors themselves and pulling information whether that's through a manual questionnaire type process or pulling information through some type of automated process yeah great question uh, so the we are not doing like active scans there there are plenty of, of, of service providers out there that do that kind of thing uh, we will integrate with those and, and use those as sort of a data point to our clients within our delivery, but that is not what is core to our delivery. Uh, our, our main offering that we are uh, shifting to from a decade plus of doing sort of legacy traditional vendor risk assessment, we call it Coral Cleared. And it is it is basically a, a way to for vendors to proactively meet a set of markers that prove that they are a, a worthy partner to contract with for any any client in the healthcare space who would who would want to do business with them. So it's it, there's kind of a couple ways to come at it. it. It can start with a client of ours wants to do business with a vendor and they say, hey, assess them against the Coral Cleared criteria. And Coral Cleared is not, it's 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 doing away with 300 control questions that you, you know, proprietary questionnaires that you uh, subject every vendor to. Uh, and, and it's basically saying here are about, uh, here, here's a handful of things that are the markers of a good security program. You know, do you have certification like like high trust or, or ISO 27001 or, or whatever. If you have that, that's a really good indicator that you're doing some some strong things. And that also provides that depth of due diligence uh, at the control level that, that we still need, but we shouldn't have to reproduce on our own. Uh, are you doing things like, do you have a dedicated security leader? You know, do you have a, an incident response plan uh, that, that accounts for whatever the customer is actually buying from you? Um, you know, are, are you doing regular pen testing and remediation? So it's the set of markers that we would assess a vendor against if we'd never encountered that vendor before and if the client wanted to assess them against it. And we can much more quickly say thumbs up, thumbs down. They're, they're meeting these markers. And if they're not, put them on a remediation pathway rather than fall back to meet those markers rather than fall back to the traditional 300 control questionnaire. The other way we, we can do it, and really the preferred way, is as vendors see the value in this and see that clients will clients of ours will um, encounter them and, and not subject them to the painful questionnaire, uh, is for the vendor to say, I'd like to proactively be Coral cleared. Um, let me show you that I have all these pieces of evidence. Let Coral's audit team validate that evidence and go, yep, they've got it. Cert looks good. There's not any scary caps in there. Pen tests make sense. They had some findings, but they're remediating them. You know, all, all of that kind of stuff that our services arm of our technology team does, and uh, basically say, hey, every client who wants to do business with vendor X, uh, they are coral cleared. So all you have to do is kind of log in, hit the database, and go, hey, they're coral cleared. It's sort of like being TSA pre-check, right, or, or clear at the airport. That that's that's the concept behind it. Um, and any any of our clients that encounter that vendor that are buying the same you know scope of products from that vendor that has been cleared, um, they're basically done with the the assessment, the quote unquote assessment, when the client logs into the portal and goes, 
hey, checking to see, yep, they're cleared. Okay, we're good. Um, that is really where we want to get. And the more vendors that we add into that fold, the more quickly we can skip through the due diligence process because it's essentially already been done. And then the final piece, you know, we mentioned continuous monitoring. That's another phrase that <clears throat> I think uh, any person you ask would have a slightly different definition of what that means. And I think a lot of the definition of it right now comes from the the scorecard type vendors that are doing those scanning uh, tools like you mentioned. Uh, again, there, there's some validity to those, but there's some problems with them too. So our, our version of continuous monitoring is, you know, it's it's obviously that certification that you got that that has to, that expires at some point and has to be maintained. So are you maintaining that? That pen test that you did three months ago, that's great that you did it. We're very glad that's a piece of evidence that matters, but you have to be continually pen testing. Um, you know, you have to be updating your your IR plan on a, on a on a recurring basis. And so giving not just markers of can you produce these pieces of evidence, but can you prove that you're continually doing them on, you know, different time bombed basis uh, based on what the piece of evidence is and continually reporting that into the portal so that any client that at any point they log in to see if they want to do business with you if, because your portal cleared you know, they can see the current status of that. And every touch point we have with a new client who wants to assess a vendor or every touch point we have with that vendor who wants to do business with a new client, uh, in addition to just, you know, the, the magic of automation and, and reach outs for, hey, your sex cert's about to retire, uh, security certification, sorry, that's an internal term. Um, can you can you upload your new one? You know, um, all of that allows that, that form of continuous monitoring that, that we're after. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I don't think automation is the be all and end all in every scenario. And and some things, you know, you can automate, but it's maybe too superficial. Some things do require a manual touch. Um, I'm curious, yeah. when you say somebody is coral cleared, if my company's coral cleared, can I use that then for all the other, all my other customers so that they can see that I'm coral cleared or does it, does it, because a lot of times these, this process, this uh, TPRM is initiated by, let's just say the, the healthcare provider, the health um, industry organization, and they will have different vendors selling to them and they will use a tool or a platform or a process to check to see uh, if their vendors are at or meeting their their requirements for security, okay? But, mm -hmm. and, and then if I clear customer A, but they're working with somebody else, that other organization still needs to kind of see if they're certified or qualified. Um, but if that company is core cleared, it's getting really confusing. <laughs> that, can Can they use that clearance level at, and, and to show all of their customers, hey, we've gone through this? Yeah, that's a great question, and that is that is absolutely our vision and our intent. Now, there's there's a market that has to be convinced that the markers that make you coral cleared are satisfactory, right? So it it, it gets us in an interesting situation. Certainly, with any coral client, they would be coral cleared. The vendor can they can do business. You know, due diligence is essentially over. Where it gets interesting is obviously they're going to encounter uh, buyers who are not coral clients. And so our hope is as we partner more with vendors, and, and that's the whole, this is kind of a reshaping of, this is a partnership between vendor, healthcare org, you know, and, and we're all in this together type of approach. And so it's not just saying healthcare orgs, how do you want to assess 
vendors. It's saying vendors, we know you hate the TPM process just as much or more as the as the healthcare orgs do. Um, and so if if you can, you know, take take hold of this concept and say, yeah, these markers make sense. We're doing a lot of them anyway. We've thought about being certified, but we're not. Um, we want to do that. Then what we would hope you can do is when you encounter new uh, buyers who are not Coral clients and are going to say, here's our questionnaire, you know, here's our 300 questions or, you know, use this exchange or whatever that you would say, use that badge of Coral Cleared as, as your, you know, your, your, your badge to say, look, I've been cleared. I, I really believe in this program. Can I explain it to you? Can can we can we tell you why we decided to do this and how other clients of ours are using it to continually monitor us um, instead of going through traditional TPRM processes that can take months and months and months? Would you consider accepting this instead? And of course, if you would, you know, feel free to go talk to the to the folks at Coral to tell you more about it or whatever. Like we we believe in sort of the. Um, the, the branching market opportunity that that provides because the, every time we talk to a vendor or a client about this this concept and it's more than just a product right there is a technology product to it but as you mentioned it's not automation isn't the end all be all there's a combination of technology and human services that drive this and anytime we talk to people about this they go that's a really good idea if you can just get everyone to buy into you know the those markers are are sufficient and so we we kind of want the vendors to almost market on our behalf uh, and say, look, we did Coral cleared. I think that I think that should be good enough. Now they're going to still obviously at the end of the day, the buyers can kind of hold the the vendor to whatever standard they they want to, uh, you know, unless they're the biggest vendors in the world, <laughs> they can set their own standards. Um, but but we definitely think we can start to win people over through not just you know our own sales team or whatever, but vendors who have been cleared saying, hey, this this kind of makes sense and could really revolutionize you as the healthcare or your TPRM program. Uh, you want to talk about this and see if this will will meet your need. Uh, but at the end of the day, certainly every every healthcare org has to make their own decision. Sure, sure. And I, I guess I should have clarified this earlier on. If you know if I'm using coral technologies as a healthcare provider as part of my TPRM, if I say that this vendor is coral cleared, is that is that my criteria, or is it solely coral's criteria, or is it a mix? Yeah, great question. So that and that's a really important underlying principle to what coral cleared is. It it is it is not a customizable set of coral cleared criteria by any customer that signs up with coral, uh, because the model falls apart if that happens. Right. So we we. We certainly take feedback from our customers on here's the here's the requirements. Um, you know, is, is anything missing? Are we asking for the right evidence? If something's missing, we absolutely will put it on the roadmap of consideration for we think we might need to add this. You know, we, we can't just introduce it like that because that that moves the goalposts on the vendors and that's not fair. But just like any kind of you know framework for security, you've got to have the ability to adapt to the, the changes in the market and, and, and what's going on in terms of, of threat and framework and control, right? Um, so we will we will adapt based on our own monitoring of, of the industry, based on customer feedback, but it's not like customer A can have 
you know, these 10 coral cleared requirements and customer C B can have these 12 coral cleared requirements because then the vendor doesn't get the benefit of I've been coral cleared and that means we're good. Um, the, the one kind of caveat to that would be that there are certainly some scoping details we, we always collect through, you know, both a combination of asking the vendor and the, and the healthcare organization, you know, what it is that they're buying. Um, and, and that can alter whether or not something truly is cleared. You know, a classic example of, uh, a lot of vendors will sell a SaaS version of their product and an on-prem version of their product. And they may have a high trust cert for their SaaS environment. And they may not have any kind of cert for their on-prem environment. And, and we have to work through, like, is, is that acceptable or not? So there are nuances like that that we try to account for more in terms of scope, but the uh, scope of what's being purchased. But the actual um, requirements themselves, they do not shift from customer to customer because that then it doesn't serve the vendor's interests. And it, this is really about meeting in the middle between all parties and trying to serve both interests, but still have the, the breadth and depth of security that, that you need. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, you're talking about uh, different <clears throat> deployment models for software and applications. What do you do or don't do in relation to looking at SBOMs? Oh, great question. That that is one of our actual requirements. Uh, if you're if you're selling, you know, any kind of product that uh, leverages software, uh, we are asking for your SBOM. Um, so, you know, I think I, I will be transparent. I think the industry is aware that SBOM is a great idea, but it's kind of like, well, what are you going to do with it, <laughs> and how do you maintain it, and how do you keep it accurate? And so, you know, we don't have the silver bullet solution for that either. We're sort of reacting to the the moment of this is a thing. The federal government has already man mandated it for anyone selling to federal government entities. This is another one of those tea leaf things, Mark. You asked about regs that might be coming in the healthcare industry. You know, a lot of times those things leak down from federal requirements. Uh, SBOM was all over the cybersecurity strategy. Um, it's all over a lot of, of CISA documentation. And so we felt like the time is right to at least ask, are you as a vendor capable of producing an SBOM? And all the operational difficulties of, of you know, how to, how to keep it up time, uh, updated in real time, a lot of people, no one really has answers to that yet. So we're not trying to solve that. But can you produce an SBOM of your current version of the software you're selling seems like a reasonable question to ask. And then what we're doing with that on our side is we also have a third-party incident response portal that is, is kind of a, a, an aspect of, of the Coral Cleared uh, technology ecosystem that is, is basically a way to quickly um, uh, gather information from key contacts at your third parties that is uh, kind of a curated service for you so you don't have to maintain your own Rolodex. Um, and, you know, if, if a, a large-scale security incident happens like a solar winds or, you know, e even like a, a major broad vulnerability that, that hits the entire security industry like a Log4j, and you just kind of need to be able to communicate with the right people at your vendor and, and not just talk to a sales guy, um, that's kind of the purpose of, of that TPIR portal. And so by collecting SBOM data, we can, at the very least, surface, you know, data about the types of dependencies you might have in your third-party ecosystem um, through that SBOM. And again, there are there are going to be operational and currency issues, right, with, with SBOM and any use case of it right now. But we think it's it's important enough to go ahead and ask for it and to for a, a mature security 
posture vendor to be able to produce it. Um, and, and, and that's a marker of, are they, are they doing the right things? And then as the industry evolves and as SBOM or, you know, whatever new version of SBOM comes out that is more sort of operationally real-time viable, you know, we'll be on top of that as, as the evolved requirement. That's a great example of how our requirements could change over time um, as, we, as we adapt to the industry. Have you ever gone through an SBOM? Yes. Uh, I have never had to produce one myself. I have, I have read through uh, a, a few and uh, yeah, it is, um, it's, it's not the, the most fun. It's not what I want to do on a Saturday. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking as you were talking that I, I don't think I've ever actually gone through one and I probably should at some point just to see what's there. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, um, what you're looking for and what are, what are some flags in, in an SBOM? Yeah, so honestly, right now, that, that's kind of what I mean by the immaturity of the industry. There, it's We're less looking for flags and more looking for, can you produce it? And then if you can produce it, whenever that next vulnerability comes out, that's, you know, in sort of a, a buried uh, aspect of your, uh, of your software chain, uh, you know, within the, this compiled product that you've built that isn't just all internally coded, we at least have the ability to, to alert a client to say, hey, there may be something here where vendor XYZ um, is using this this uh, vulnerable product, and it's a, it's a major vulnerability that kind of has the whole industry on fire. You should probably communicate with them to just to validate. They'll be able to tell you for real in real time if it's if it's truly there and if it's vulnerable. But we can at least surface the data point to you so you're aware. So we're, we're looking at it more that can you produce it and can we harvest enough data to make it somewhat operationally useful as opposed to, you know, they're, they're not including the right code libraries or, you know, they're, they're using deprecated versions of, of, of whatever product, like we're not to that level with it yet. Um, might get there as, as we evolve, but our, our use case is much more, if you can show you can produce it, then that's a level of maturity that we're after. And then we can probably do something useful with the data downstream. Yeah, I mean, at, at some point, if you were able to catalog, you know, everything in or all the content in all of your customers' SBOMs, and then kind of at the same time look at any known vulnerabilities or issues that, um, you know, or zero day exploits, et cetera, and then immediately flag any of the SBOMs or the customers yep. that, that, you know, that, that related to, that would be, I think, incredibly valuable. Um, yeah, it would be. And we, the, what, what I have learned from people who are better experts in SBOM than I am <clears throat> is that, that, that is absolutely a use case, but we're, we may not be there yet because, uh, you know, even if you find a version that you think might be vulnerable of some software package, there are so many nuances to whether or not that's truly as vulnerable that don't necessarily surface in an SBOM that you've got to be real careful about, back to your comment about automation, about like automating <clears throat> alerts or re reducing a risk rating or whatever uh, for for a, a vendor on, on something like that. And so I, I, that, it will be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, and I also don't want to come off as an SBOM expert. I, I am not. But that, that is what I have learned through the process and very exciting to see where that can go. But not sure. At least we were not confident enough that that was the endeavor we wanted to go uh, go about as of right now. Gotcha. Hey, um, last question. What advice 
if you just give one piece of advice for anybody in the uh, healthcare industry in terms of cybersecurity and data protection or staying compliant with the current regulatory landscape, you know, what is what is the one thing that they should be looking at? Now, I think the easiest answer, and I'll probably always get accused of bias on this one because the bulk of my uh, career in the cybersecurity space has, has had a, a undercurrent of risk management, right? But um, I, th I think being able to efficiently and effective perform risk analysis and then a risk management process, it sounds like a, such a cliched and like generic answer, but there, it is still the number one finding from Office of Civil Rights uh, when when they you know uh, send send penalties to a, a breached or an investigated organization that they're not performing risk analysis and, and risk management. And so, number one, that's already a reason to be like, wow, it's it's you know HIPAA has been around for twenty some odd years and we we still haven't figured out how to do that. But number two, it's it is the underlying thing that that drives every decision you make about all the cool technologies and bells and whistles and blinky lights that you actually have to invest in to protect your environment. So, you know, that maybe if you're, if you're just, if you just need to get like basic blocking and tackling in place, you know, I would probably do things like vulnerability management and, and, and perimeter, uh, perimeter defense in terms of ports and protocols not being exposed to the internet, you know, just the stuff that like you're going to get breached tomorrow if you're not doing um, but if you, if you, most people, most companies are not in the state of just not having a security program at all. So if you have a security program, you have some basic technologies in place that protect you. I think the most important thing you can do is go out, whether it's you do it on your own or you get someone that helps you build a, a, a risk assessment approach that you can routinely run. You can do it at least once a year, hopefully more than that. Right. But even doing it once a year can be really, really hard if you're new to it. And then that you have a risk management framework and governance in place with business leaders actually helping you make decisions about which which risk to remediate because there's going to be cost. There's you know it's it's not just security can solve all the world's problems. That would really be the thing that I point to. Awesome. Hey, Britton, I, I said that was the last question. I actually have one more question because you've okay. mentioned a couple times that the Office of Civil Rights you know, is is involved in these discussions related to cybersecurity, especially in the healthcare space. And I got to say that that was a, um, I don't know, a blind spot for me. I didn't understand why the Office of Civil Rights is, or how they became active in this space. Can you explain a little bit about the, uh, of the background there? Sure. Uh, in terms of how they became the sort of the primary boogeyman for, for in terms of compliance for healthcare security people, I, I don't actually know the complete background there, but but essentially HHS charged uh, HHS uh, Health and Human Services charged Office of Civil Rights to be the the oversight for uh, HIPAA and high tech when when those acts came out. So whereas in other industries you may be used to you know the, the SEC or, or some other governing body, the Office of Civil Rights, if you're a, a healthcare security person, the Office of Civil Rights is who you pay attention to in terms of rule setting. So they own um, investigation and enforcement of, of HIPAA and high tech, and, and particularly our, our privacy brethren in the, in the healthcare world uh, who, who uh, are responsible for complying with the HIPAA privacy rule. You know, all kinds of inquiry, inquiries and investigations from Office of Civil Rights come their way. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, that they were named as, as responsible. I don't know the entire background of, of why them versus someone else, um, but that's, that's, that's the primary entity in healthcare, again, at the behest of, of HHS that, uh, that does compliance um, investigation and um, um, requirements for healthcare. Thank you for that. And it's very interesting. I, actually, as you were talking, I'm on the on their their website, and there is a ton of information here about cybersecurity in the context of healthcare providers, et cetera. So, uh, yep. uh, and so some of those questions are in in uh, that I asked earlier on re re related to you know upcoming legislation and which way the winds are blowing. You know, and I'm looking at there's there's several articles here right now. There's some podcasts. So hey, I just learned something new. So thank you for that. Hey, uh, Britain. Really enjoyed enjoy this conversation. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about Coral Technologies or your CyberFix podcast, what should they do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, go to CoralTechnologies.com. That's C-O-R-L Technologies.com. And then the CyberFix podcast, you can subscribe to us on any of the any of the podcasters that any of you use. I, I use iTunes still. I'm old school, I guess. Um, would love to have you as a listener. Uh, I, I do about uh, one or two a month on specifically on healthcare security topics and would love to hear from you. And on the Coral side, if Coral Cleared was of interest to you, coraltechnologies.com, or you know, if you want the personal touch, please don't hesitate on LinkedIn. I'm on there, Britton Burton. Uh, please don't hesitate to message me. Uh, I, will, I will talk to you personally or you know, get you in touch with someone uh, who, who can meet your needs and uh, appreciate the plug there. Hey, Britton, it was great having you on Secure Talk, and I'd like to wish you and the rest of the your team a great remainder of 2023. Thanks, Mark. Have a great one. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.